We come now today in our study of the book of Acts to Acts chapter 23 verses 12 through 35. Now to those of you that have been with us over the last few weeks, you will, you will note that we are still with Paul in Jerusalem as he's still in prison. And it's like how many sermons can you have while Paul is in prison in Jerusalem awaiting him to go to Rome? Like a lot, okay? There's a lot. But like I've said in the past, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and on and on and on. And so we as a church are disciplined to study the entire Word of God and to apply it to our lives. And so we will read it and teach that accordingly. So if you have a Bible or you have the bulletin, you can follow along as I read this. By way of reminder... Paul got into this situation because he's gone throughout the known Roman Empire teaching about Christ and particularly going into synagogues and teaching that how Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures and the Jews despised what he was teaching. And finally, he ends up back in Jerusalem after going all throughout Greece and modern day Turkey and northern um, Jordan and Syria and comes back into Jerusalem and there were, there were Jews from these areas in the Roman Empire. And they see him in the temple and they're so frustrated that Paul is in the temple. And they say, this man, he's trying to take us away from God. And they want to kill him. And so they put him in prison. So that's where we are. He's in prison. Here is exactly what takes place in Acts 23. It's a fun story. It's, it could be turned into a drama. So here it is. When it was dead, the Jews made a plot. And bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul. Paul then called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So the, tribune took him, brought him to the, tri uh, the, the centurion took him to the tribune, and he said to the tribune, Paul prisoner has called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these great things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudia, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. 
to their counsel. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Intripetus. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. John, will you turn me down just a touch? Thank you. I have before you three or four books by one of my professors in seminary. Now, I don't know if you can see him way in the back. They big. <laughs> they real big. Now, I knew going into the school, the seminary, that I was going to be taught by this guy. And if you're like me, I... I, I you're not the, I'm, the, not the, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, especially when it comes to big academics. So when I see these books, Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, okay? I don't even know what that means. What does this mean? It's talking about epistemology, the study of knowledge. Deeply overwhelmed. So I got this book, I got this book, I got this book, I got that book, and I started reading it, and okay, it was kind of helpful, but then he started lecturing and be like, I got no clue. I got no clue what he was talking about. Now, granted, he was not the best lecturer. He was a much better author than he was lecturer. And so most of the time while I was in his lectures, I was not a good student. I was a bad student. I decided to peruse ESPN or something like that. <laughs> I was overwhelmed, you could say. It felt like there's so much knowledge, there's so much to know. I don't know how to make sense of it. I feel overwhelmed insignificant and I'm troubled these are big books how do you understand them but this man writes books for a reason this man is a good teacher for a reason and there was one thing that he said that really caught my attention he says this it's a really simple phrase and I want to teach it to you today theology is application theology is is application. If you want to break down all these books into its simple form, it's application. God has revealed himself for us to respond to it, to learn lessons to it. It's not to just puff our brains up and to be the smartest people on the block. It's not to be like, yes, we're so much smarter than those people over there. No, we know about God so that we apply it to our lives and respond appropriately. I, I, I put this before you because I think it's pertinent to many of us as we read scripture, as we study these stories and we go through each little story in the book of Acts, we could be reading these things and being like, what's the purpose? What, what, why are we reading? Are we just going through the motions? Is this why we're here, just to go through the motions? No. <laughs> Theology is application. We hear these stories to apply it to our lives. And that's what we're going to do today. I've titled this sermon, Three Movements, Three Lessons, because there's three movements in the story we read. And I think there's three lessons, at the very least, that we can take from these three movements. 
Let us not fall into just kind of going through the motions. No, we have the word of God. We have this story from the book of Acts so that we might apply it to our lives. So church, let's look at the three movements of Acts 23, 12 through 35 and take the three lessons that these three movements take to us so that we might honor God, the very word that he gave to us and follow in line. So three movements, three lessons, and it's really easy. There's three movements. If you, you have that outline here, there's three movements. The first movement's called the plot. The second movement's called the nephew. The third movement is called the Romans. So three movements, the plot, the nephew, the Romans. Let's look at this story that we might apply the lessons this story has for us. And you have to apologize. I pulled up. I have, I have um, all, my store, uh, all my sermons lined up. And um, the one I pulled up was three questions. I guess I'm, I need better titles. I need to find three movements and lessons. I'm so sorry. We might just have to ad lib it. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, I'm going to do one more thing and then I will ad lib it because I'll be ready to preach. I think I'm ready to preach, but I want to make sure that I got this. I got it. Why did it do that? I don't know. My apologies, guys. All right, three movements, three lessons. The first movement we see is the plot. Now, recall the plot made by the 40 Jews against Paul as he's in prison. 40 men bound themselves by an oath to not drink or eat till they had killed Paul. Now remember, they were frustrated with Paul because they found him in the temple going through these Jewish rites and they thought he was against them. And so they're incredibly frustrated. But, but let's take a moment to consider the, the plot that they have and the oath that they make. Do you see what the oath that they're making? They're essentially saying... Either Paul dies or we die. We're not going to eat or drink. We're literally going to deprive ourselves of life until we kill Paul. Now think about this. That which is worth dying for are typically the most valuable things in our life. God, children, our country, our family. And these men were fighting probably for these things. And they wanted Paul dead. And they were willing to be killed themselves in order to kill Paul, Paul had posed to them a great threat, their families and to God. But of course, they needed to pull off the plot that they had cooked up with help. And so to do this, they went to the chief priests and the elders. They went to the head of the Jewish faith and said, let's rope these guys in on our plot. Surely they will agree with us of our opinion about Paul. So they go to them and they say to them, this is the oath we have made. We're not going to eat food or drink till we kill Paul. But we ask that you, along with the Jewish council, would go to the tribune in Rome and ask them to bring Paul down to act like we're going to put on this just, just a trial for Paul. But when he comes, we'll kill him before he even gets there. So you won't even be in hot water with Rome. We'll just do it. They wanted to do this in a twisted, immoral, and downright evil way. And seemingly all of Jerusalem was in on this plot. Think for a moment. What's taking place here? 
All the Jews in Jerusalem are seemingly in on killing Paul. And they'll do whatever it takes. Think about the opposition that he faces in this moment. Now he's of course at this moment ignorant of it. But I want you to consider having a whole city against you. Even to, unbeknownst to you. How great of opposition that is. Now, of course, at this moment, when the, when the 40 men come to these men, they end up, the, the, the story ends there. We don't hear what the chief priests and elders do in re, re, reaction to this, but presumably they're willing to go through with this. They're willing to be profound and intense in their opposition against Paul. It's severe and significant opposition. The plot is one of intense opposition to Paul. Now, here's what I want you to see. We have this intense opposition against Paul. But the key in this opposition is to see the story in its context. Because left to itself, the opposition is incredibly hard for Paul. Paul is in trouble. The Jews and the Romans, okay, at this moment had a decent relationship. Jesus, if you remember, Jesus had, had, was marched between high priests and the Roman consulate. So Jews and Romans are working together. So it's not a big stretch for them to, to bring Paul before the Jews and to have him try. So the, the opposition is so intense. But here's what I want you to remember. Acts 23.11, we hear a promise from God to Paul. And the promise was this. Jesus told Paul right before this opposition intensified this. He said, take courage. Take courage. Why? For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So here Paul is promised by the Lord himself that he will be in Rome, testifying to his name there. So seen in this light, the opposition that is mounting against Paul, seemingly all of Jerusalem, including the chief priests and the council and these men. Well, it's nothing compared to the very promise of God. That Paul himself will be in Rome. Seen in this light, the opposition that is mounted against Paul is useless. And it ultimately is. This is the movement we see. Opposition in light of a promise that God had made. So what is the lesson? Here's the lesson that we learn from this. The opposition that Christians face may be intense. But fear not, for God is greater. When God promises something, it will come to pass. So whether you face religious, political, familial, personal opposition, fear not, because God is ultimately greater. Church, like Paul, we have received promises from God that enable us to remain calm, grounded, and confident in God's promises. Forget not the opposition our Lord and Savior endured, how he was nailed to the cross, how he was rejected by his Jewish brothers and sisters, and even abandoned by his disciples. Forgot, forget not how the world went dark because the Father even turned his face away. Forget not that the Lord experienced death itself, the greatest opponent that any of us have. And he went into this great and mysterious world we know not yet, death. He experienced great opposition. Jesus did. But guess what? He came out on the other side. For three days later, he rose from the dead. He faced great opposition, but there was a promise that he would walk again, and he did. You may lose your life 
I want you to realize that for what you believe in. You might, but fear not. God is even greater than death. The world may oppose you. The physical life that we all live will oppose you, but God is greater than all of that. And we must learn this lesson to fear not that which opposes us, even if it is great. The plot that Paul faced, even though he didn't even know it, was so great. The city of Jerusalem was against him, but God had promised that he will go to Rome. And as we will see here shortly, God was true to that promise. And so we go down to the second movement, how God is faithful to his promise. And we'll look at how God begins to be faithful to his promises. So we transition to the second movement of this story. And the second movement of this story is the nephew. The second movement of this dramatic story follows the nephew of Paul. And I want you to understand that this is a very, very unique story in the Bible. For here and only here is the, is the only mention of Paul's immediate family. Paul, the beloved apostle who bleeds blood all over the pages of his epistles, never mentions his family. He simply doesn't. But here in Acts 23, we get a glimpse of Paul's family. Paul has a sister who has a son. And this son comes and tells him of the plot that has been made against him. Now I find it interesting that this nephew is not named. We don't know who this nephew is. It's just simply, it's not even nephew. It's the son of Paul's sister. And it makes me wonder, why do we not know his name? Why do we know so little of his family? And I think it's worth speculating why this is the case. Because in speculating, we can kind of put ourselves in Paul's shoes and kind of be in the jail cell with him and to be with him as he considers all that he's given up. Let's recall who Paul is. Paul ultimately was a Jew. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3. Thus, we know from this that his family was Jewish. They were the ones who sent him to learn from Gamaliel, the great Jewish scholar in Jerusalem. Now, thinking of this, think of how difficult it was for them when they learned that Paul followed Christ. When he stopped pursuing the way of the Pharisee and he started to follow after Christ, how do you think his family felt? Could you imagine your child leaving the Christian faith for another? How difficult would that be? Well, this is what they felt when he left the Jewish faith. You might not abandon them, and I presumably they didn't abandon him because his nephew came to his rescue. But I think that there is a lot of difficulty with Paul and his family. Now consider that Paul's family is zealous for their faith. Someone who was willing to die for their faith, like the 40 zealots. This family probably had a very difficult time with Paul as a Christian. How are they feeling about Paul in the, in the, in the jail? Probably conflicted. I, I think we can kind of glimpse a little bit of Paul and how he felt about his family in Philippians 3.8. If you have a Bible, you can go there. I'm going to read it for you. But Paul in Philippians 3.8 says this, I have suffered the loss of all things. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Perhaps it is speculation 
But I don't think it's a stretch to say that the all things that he says that he has suffered the loss of includes his family. It's hard to know exactly, but this nephew at the very least takes a great risk to himself. Perhaps going against his family's wishes to be with Paul. But nevertheless, he goes to the family, or goes to Paul and tells him what he has heard. This nephew is courageous. Of course, now Paul hears of this plot that's against him, and he takes the young man to the tribune, and he's like, hey, tell them what you've heard. And he says to the tribune, what is it that you have to tell? Or the tribune says, what do you tell me? And he says, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them, for they have more than 40 of their men lying in ambush who have bound themselves by oath to kill him. And so on hearing this, the tribune dismissed the young man and told him to not tell anyone that you have informed me of these things. Here's what I want you to see. We have in this story how God is faithful to his promises. We have this brave little nephew who goes to his uncle despite perhaps the family's speculation about Paul, perhaps the family's frustration of Paul against the, 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 the will of the people of Jerusalem who would likely have killed him as well had they heard that he was going to save Paul. He went and he showed great courage and love to save his uncle. And this nephew didn't receive any accolades. We don't know his name and he's never mentioned again in scripture. But God providentially used him for his great and grand purpose to fulfill the promise to bring Paul to Rome. So what's the lesson? This is the movement, right? The, the nephew comes in and he tells Paul and then the centurion and then the tribune and, and, and movements happen. What's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Doubt not who can be utilized to accomplish God's will. I'm going to say this again. What's the lesson from this nephew? Doubt not who can be utilized to accomplish God's will. One of my favorite stories, and I've told this several times in church, I'm going to tell it again, because one of my favorite stories of a friend of mine is of his conversion when he became a Christian. My friend was a drug addict. He was into all sorts of bad things, and his life was just near rock bottom until he found out that his dad had died. And it went deeper. And the day that his dad died, he went out and got so high he couldn't even think. And he ended up in his room on his bed, lying there, stoned out of his mind. And his uncle comes bursting through the door of his house, swearing at him and cursing at him. And he says, boy, you get yourself to church right now. Expletive, expletive, expletive. <laughs> and in the midst of this stupor and high, Something clicked for my friend. And he said, that night I walked to the church and I gave myself to the Lord. Had it not been for my swearing, angry uncle, I don't know. Doubt not who God can use to accomplish his purposes. And that includes you. You might say to yourself, there's no way that I can be used by God. 
There's no way. I've done X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Doubt not who God can use to accomplish his purposes. He used this nephew who likely was scared out of his mind, who, who, who found out about this plot, who, who maybe just, just loved his uncle because his uncle used to bounce him on his knee as a child. I don't know. But you know what happened to Paul from that moment? You know that the book of Acts would probably have ended had it not been for this nephew. And do you know what the church would have been deprived of? Books like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Philemon. These are all books that Paul has wrote to the church after this event. Were it not for this nephew, oh friend, the church would have been deprived. But God is faithful to his promises, and he will use whoever he wills, including little people like nephews. That's the lesson of that movement, friends. So we've seen two movements. We've seen the movement of the plot against Paul to kill him. We've seen the movement of the nephew and how he saved his uncle. Now we transition to movement number three, the Romans. The final movement pertains to the Romans and their reaction to the news brought to them by the nephew. And what I must say to you is that the way the Romans are presented in these verses, verses 23 through 35, is to pose a contrast to the Jews at the beginning of this section. This contrast is startling. What I mean by this is the Jews are incredibly unjust and the Romans are just. The Jews are immoral. The Romans are moral. Let me follow. You can follow this along. Upon hearing the immoral plot to kill Paul, the Romans respond and whip up into this just cause. The tribune immediately starts calling shots to protect Paul. Now consider, it's 40 men going against Paul, but what does he do? How many people does he call to protect Paul? He says, first, get 200 soldiers. I mean, that's a lot. 200 can take 40 pretty easily, especially 200 trained Roman soldiers. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, not only... 200 soldiers bring 70 horsemen. I mean, that's like a fighter jet for this era. But that's not where he ends. Get 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. You have 470 soldiers to protect Paul in this moment against 40 men. I mean, some of the most... Bad to the bone soldiers you can think of to protect Paul. They are simply protecting just cause. But not only that, they say Paul needs to be riding a horse too. So not only is he going to just be going through this, he's going to be riding through it on a stallion, like on a Mustang. And we're going to go through, we're going to get him to say passage. I mean, the Romans bend over backwards to protect Someone who's being treated unjustly. He's protected by an army riding on a stallion. But the tribune isn't even done there. He writes a detailed letter to Felix, the governor, ensuring that when he was received, he would be received safely. And it's a detailed letter. Why would we have this detailed letter? And I'm not going to read it to you because this is recounting the story of Paul. But why do we have this detailed letter again in this story? I think it's to create the contrast between the just Romans and the unjust Jews. 
Why are the Jews unjust and the Romans are so just? Why are the Romans the good guys and the Jews are the bad guys? What's going on here? It's pretty simple. Just like the nephew, God's going to accomplish his purpose. And unlike the nephew, it's not who he uses, but rather what he uses. So this is the lesson that I want you to see. This is the lesson. God will use whatever he wants to accomplish his purpose. He'll even use a beastly empire like the Romans to accomplish it. What, what is the purpose of all of this justness of the Romans? Why, why are we getting all of this detail? It's because Paul's going to Rome. And he's going to stand before the empire and plead his cause. This is what God has called him to. And he's going to use proper means to get it done. And the proper means in this particular case is the just system of the Roman government. Look, the Roman government is evil. It's wicked. Read the book of Revelation. Most of the beastly nature of all that language, that allegorical language, is about the Romans. It's not a good group of people. But God says, I will even use the Romans, the beastly people, to accomplish my purposes. I am Lord of all. I am the King of kings. The Lord of lords. And I will even use this empire to accomplish my purposes, which is my news going everywhere. So here's the lesson again. God will use whatever he wants to accomplish his purposes. I'll tell you how I've experienced this in my life, and I'm sure you can think through some of the situations in your life. When I graduated from college, I, I was thrust into this gigantic youth group. I, I was leading a youth group of about 400 kids. I had no business doing that. I was 23, lonely, and incredibly green. The reason I got thrust into that, though, was because my boss was fired for improper conduct. He was my friend. He was the closest ally that I had. He was the one I listened to and longed for. But in that, that awful, awful moment of his improper conduct and of his being let go, I ended up on a road trip in the state of Alabama, lonely. But then I hung out with some friends, some new friends, and I met my wife. Mama. My kid, Mama Jasper. God used a horrible situation, like the improper conduct of my, my mentor, my boss, to bring me to my wife. He'll use what God will use whatever he pleases to accomplish his will. But there could be moments in your life, like that I just shared of my life, that you're like, there's no way, there's no way God could use that. <laughs> you're talking to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're talking to the person who can use the Roman Empire in all its complexity to accomplish his purposes. Doubt not what God can use to accomplish his purposes, even the hardest moments in your life. The lesson is to get on your knees and be in awe of our God who can use whoever and whatever he pleases to accomplish his purposes. And let me tell you something, his purposes, they are good.
and the end is glorious. So let us not forget our God. Let us, in the face of opposition, whatever we might say, hold steady because the promises of God are far greater than the opposition we face. And God will use whoever and whatever he pleases to get that done. There's the lesson of scripture, friends. Just remember, when you read the Bible and you learn these things, theology is application. This is what I've done for you today. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would apply these things to your life. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we give thanks to you for the word of God which is given to us. It is a light unto our path. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would walk in accordance to the light that you have given to us, especially in light of this text. Indeed, we can face opposition, whether it be from our family, our work, our school, our culture, whoever. But in the face of those oppositions, O oh Lord, we pray that you would remind us of the great promises of the gospel. How though the opposition may be great, you are even greater. That even death itself is nothing to you. Oh, may we rejoice and reflect on this, O oh Lord, and fall in that light.